0: In a sense, the Bible is a tale of two cities. From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible tracks the conflict between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And every kingdom has a capital. God's capital city on the earth was Jerusalem. Whereas Satan's headquarters was the city of Babylon. Babylon is mentioned 300 times in scripture. In the ancient world, Babylon was the hotbed for astrology and occult worship and pagan belief. You remember the Tower of Babel was the focus of mankind's first organized revolt against God. The Lord broke up the rebels by confusing the people's language. And yet, even after God's judgment, Babylon remained the center for false religion. Babel reached its zenith in the late 6th century B.C. under a king named Nebuchadnezzar. He conquered Judah in 605 BC. Two of Babylon's distinguishing features that exemplified its magnificence were one, its most famous, were its hanging gardens. The Greek historian Herodotus referred to the gardens as one of the seven wonders of the world. The other example of Babylon's greatness were its walls. A double wall, 311 feet high, by 87 foot thick, surrounded the city. The Euphrates river flowed under the walls of the city and supplied it with water. The city of Babylon was considered unconquerable. And yet, the fall of Babylon came in the year 539 BC. A coalition army of Medes and Persians took the farmland north of Babylon. And then they surrounded the city. The Babylonians were braced for a long siege. They had storehouses of food that would last them 20 years. The Euphrates River would provide a ceaseless source of water. But the Persian king Cyrus and his general, Ugabaru, they had a plan. You see, the farms north of Babylon were irrigated by an elaborate system of canals. And so the Medo-Persian troops, they went upstream and they diverted the river into these canals. This dried up the riverbed of the river that flowed under the city. And thus enabling the invaders to enter Babylon, not by scaling over the walls, but by marching under the fortified walls. The surprise tactic caught the Babylonians off guard. And the supposedly impregnable city was taken by the Medes and the Persians without firing a single shot. And as is often the case, the backstory is even more compelling, more fascinating. Daniel chapter 5 tells us what happened in the king's palace the night, the night that the Euphrates River was diverted and the Medes and Persians came into the city from under the walls It seems that the king of Babel at the time was a man named Belshazzar. And on this particular night, the city city fell. He was hosting in his palace a drunken orgy. During the party, in fact, he decided to mock the gods of Babylon's conquered foes. And he made the mistake of including Judah's God, the one true God. From the Babylonian war chest he brought out the sacred vessels that God had ordained for use in Solomon's temple. His revelers were using the holy vessels as beer mugs and as shot glasses. It was a deliberate attempt to humiliate and to desecrate the God of Israel. But at that very moment, mysterious handwriting appeared on the wall in the king's palace it was written by the finger of God. It was a supernatural script. Daniel, the prophet, was called in to interpret the writing. Here was God's message to Belshazzar. Mene, mene, tekel you In other words, your number is up. You've been weighed and found lacking. Your kingdom is about to be divided. And at that very moment, Baru marched his troops under the walls and into the city and conquered Babylon. It's interesting that the Hebrew prophets had seen this all in advance. All in advance, God had given them the vision. The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 51, predicted the fall of Babylon 50 years before it happened. Isaiah wrote of the Persian conquest of Babylon 160 years before it actually happened. Isaiah 45 verse 1, believe it or not, even mentions the Persian king Cyrus by name 100 years before he was even born. Amazing, the prophecies of Scripture. God seeing the future as if it were the past. And here in Isaiah chapter 13 and 14, God predicts judgment on Babylon and on her evil inspiration, that devil who made her the headquarters of ungodliness. Well, verse 1 begins, The burden against Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. The word burden, it means heavy. Here's a heavy warning. Here's a serious message. Hey, we could call it a heavy revy. It's a dire warning from God. He says, lift up a banner on the high mountain. Raise your voice to them. Wave your hand that they may enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded my sanctified ones. I have also called my mighty ones for my anger Those who rejoice in my exaltation. The noise of a multitude in the mountains, like that of many people. A tumultuous noise of the kingdoms of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts musters the army for battle. They come from a far country, from the end of heaven. The Lord and his weapons of indignation to destroy the whole land. This is the burden against Babylon. And I gave you some details about the fall of Babylon, of ancient Babylon. But the most striking feature here in Isaiah 13 isn't the similarities between the battles, but its dissimilarities. For example, Isaiah sees Babylon surrounded by many nations. When Babylon fell in 539 BC, there were only two conquering nations, the Medes and the Persians. They were the only ones that came against the city. Here in verse 5, Isaiah says the invaders come from a far country, as far away as the ends of the heaven. The Medo-Persians were Babel's next-door neighbors. Verse 5 also mentions weapons of indignation. You remember ancient Babylon fell without firing a shot. And so why these discrepancies? Was Isaiah's prophecy wrong? Not hardly. Isaiah definitely saw the fall of Babylon. Babylon. But remember what we've noted about ancient prophecy, about biblical prophecy. It often has a twofold fulfillment. There is an immediate, short term fulfillment. And then there is also a long range future fulfillment. Many Bible scholars see here in Isaiah 13 and 14 a prediction still future. Isaiah prophesies about the fall of a rebuilt Babylon. And one of the reasons we think much of this prophecy is still future is found here in verse 6. Notice. Well, for the day of the Lord is at hand. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And here is a strategic biblical mile marker, a signpost, the day of the Lord. Throughout the Bible, this phrase looks to the end of the age when God will have his say in the affairs of man. You know, today is what we would call the day of man. Man is having his say. Man is getting his way. And frankly, I'm tired of all his jabber. He's making a mess of things. Mankind keeps hailing himself as an expert in this and in that. He keeps spouting off his wisdom while the world And our quality of life continued to deteriorate. We have made a mess of things. And I long for the day when God will finally have His way. And when God will get His say. The day is coming when God will have the final word. The day of the Lord begins when Jesus raptures the church. And brings judgment on this wicked world. It culminates when He returns and Jesus sets up His kingdom on the earth. Evil Babylon will finally and utterly fall. And Jesus will establish his throne on the earth in Jerusalem. The kingdom of God will have finally come to earth. This is the day that Isaiah is foreseeing. And it includes the destruction of Babylon. Notice verse 7 tells us. Therefore, all hands will be limp. Every man's heart will melt and they'll be afraid. Serious things will come upon the earth. It will strike fear in men's hearts. Pangs and sorrows will take hold of them. They will be in pain as a woman in childbirth. They will be amazed at one another. Their faces will be like flames. You know, Paul uses the same language when he describes the judgments that will occur during the great tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 and 3 puts it, For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say, peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. A false peace will get interrupted abruptly by terrible judgments that will grip the globe like labor pains. This is all going to happen in the last days. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. Remember, the Bible mentions two types of tribulation. In John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus told his disciples, in this world, you will have tribulation. This world is always going to persecute Christians. It's always going to trouble the followers of Jesus. If it didn't like Jesus, it won't like us. But that's not the trouble that Isaiah is here describing. He's talking about the tribulation that God will vent upon the world. God is angry with our wicked ways. And the day is coming when He will finally judge fiercely. The cruelty of the nations will be met by the severity of God's wrath. He says, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth, and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Verse 10 obviously goes beyond the scope of the historical battle. Isaiah mentions cosmic cataclysms as part of God's judgment. In fact, compare Isaiah's description here with Jesus' prediction in Matthew chapter 24 and you'll see that Jesus and Isaiah are on the same page when it comes to the day of the Lord. Both agree that these astronomical phenomena will summon the end of the age and the coming of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 11, God declares, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Notice that, God will halt the arrogance of the proud. Hey, there comes a time when God's going to say no more. I'm surprised it hadn't already occurred. But there'll come a time. He only lets our prideful proclamations go so far. He says, I will make a mortal more rare than fine gold, a man more than the golden wedge of Ophir. When God's final judgments are poured out on planet earth, gold will be more plentiful than guys. Massive destruction and widespread death will ravage life as we know it today. Verse 13, therefore I will shake the heavens and the earth will move out of her place in the wrath of the Lord of hosts and in the day of his fierce anger. You read in Revelation of the global cataclysms that will take place and the massive death tolls that will follow in their wake. You know, A quarter of the world will be destroyed. A third of the world's population will be destroyed. We're talking billions of people will die in these last days' judgments. God is going to shake the heavens. And more than that, he's going to shake the earth. It'll be moved out of its place, he says, by the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Over the years, in all of my trips to California, I've only experienced one earthquake. But that one was enough. Mac and I, we were in the upper deck at Anaheim Stadium watching the Angels game when all of a sudden my seat started to shake and the foul pole in front of me started to shake and everything started to shake. Woo! Turns out the epicenter, it was the epicenter of the 5.7 quake, was south of San Diego, down near the Mexican border. We felt it as far away as Anaheim, 100 miles away. But it was a moving experience. It was serious, not for the locals, it was just a 5.7, but for Mack and I, it was something to remember. And yet the day is coming when God will shake not only California, He's going to shake the earth off its foundations. He'll even shake the heavens above. As Jerry Lee Lewis sang, there's a whole lot of shaking going on. Verse 14, it shall be... As the hunted gazelle and as a sheep that no man takes up, every man will turn to his own people and everyone will flee to his own land. Would you pay close attention to the language there in verse 14? The subtlety probably escaped the Jews of old, but not those of us who have the benefit of a New Testament. For notice the people who live through God's final judgments on planet Earth are referred to, and I quote, as a sheep that no one takes up. Did you see that? That implies that some sheep do get taken up. Throughout the New Testament, we're taught that before God's judgment comes down, God's church, Christ's church, is going to go up. It's called the rapture. Jesus will descend in the clouds and snatch us to heaven. Critics of the rapture say that the doctrine never appeared in the Old Testament, but I beg your pardon? Here it is. Verse 15, Everyone who is found will be thrust through, and everyone who is captured will fall by the sword. Their children also will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be plundered and their wives ravished. Behold, I stir up the Medes against them, who will not regard silver, and as for gold, they will not delight in it. Here Isaiah mentions the Medes. Apparently, the Medes were motivated by revenge more so than gold. And this may speak of the aftermath of Babylon's fall in 539 B.C., or it could refer to the modern-day Medes. And who might they be? How about the Kurds? The Kurds, the Kurdish people, are the ethnic group that served as Saddam Hussein's whipping boy in the 1980s. And they're now the object of the wrath and hate of the new Islamic state, ISIS. Remember, Saddam experimented with his weapons of mass destruction on the Kurds. He gassed innocent men, women, and children. Kurdish Kurdish vengeance and anger may still be taken out on a future Babylonian king. That's what Isaiah sees here. Notice verse 18, also their bows will dash the young men to pieces, and they will have no pity on the fruit of the womb. Their eye will not spare children. Our translation uses bows, but the Hebrew word kesif is literally launcher, possibly modern missile launchers. Verse 19, and Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the beauty of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember Genesis 19 records Sodom's destruction, and I quote, The Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah out of the heavens. And apparently Babylon will be destroyed in a blazing inferno. But again, this doesn't relate to ancient Babylon. Remember, it was conquered without firing a shot. The city was taken by the Medes and the Persians intact. I believe this fire raining from heaven is reserved for a future Babylon. In fact, Revelation 17 and 18 speaks of a future Babylon. Either ancient Babylon will be rebuilt where it was torn down, or the Babylonian system of religion will become so identified with one city that it takes its name. But John sees this future Babylon. She becomes the world center for business and religion. And yet we're told in Revelation 18, verse 19, in one hour she is made desolate. He reports that the nations will mourn when they see the smoke of her burning. Once again, she'll be destroyed, as will Sodom and Gomorrah. I believe what Isaiah sees, this Babylonian overthrow, like Sodom, is a future city that will rise in the last days. Now notice verse 20 adds, "...and it will never be inhabited, nor will it be settled from generation to generation." Nor will the Arabian pitch tents there, nor will the shepherds make their sheepfolds there. But wild beasts of the desert will lie there, and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches will dwell there, and wild goats will caper there. This once mighty city will be abandoned and lie in ruins. It'll be uninhabited by anyone other than wild desert animals. Not even the Arabians will pitch their tents there. I wonder what will keep them away. Could it be radiation fallout? He says, the hyenas will howl in their citadels and jackals in their pleasant palaces. Her time is near to come and her days will not be prolonged. Again, these last verses here of chapter 13 depict an abandoned Babylon, a fact not true of ancient Babylon. After being conquered by the Medo-Persians in 539 B.C., The city remained vital for centuries. In fact, 200 years later, Alexander the Great made the city of Babylon his capital. Again, Isaiah's prophecy is yet for the future. This is why the former Iraqi ruler, Saddam Hussein, when he made his attempts to reconstruct Babylon, this is why it drew so much attention from Bible scholars. Did you realize that in the desert, 62 miles south of Baghdad, Saddam Hussein spent $25 million rebuilding ancient Babylon, or at least starting. He styled himself as the next Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted Babylon to be his capital. In fact, many of our American troops walked the halls of Sodom's 500-room palace. He rebuilt Babylon's Marduk Gate and several other ceremonial buildings. He had plans to reproduce the hanging gardens and even the infamous Tower of Babel. Obviously, his plans were cut short, but who knows if a future Middle East leader won't revive this vision of a new Babylon. With all the oil money flowing into the region, the means exist for a Dubai-type construction project. Babylon may well rise from the ashes again. It's interesting, when Isaiah first uttered this prophecy, Babylon was just a local city on the Euphrates River. It took a hundred years in the overthrow of Assyria for Babylon to become a world empire. The thought of Babylon Babylon as a superpower sounded as strange to Isaiah's contemporaries as, as the idea of a present-day Babylon becoming a strategic city again is as strange to our ears. But in the decades to come, I challenge you, keep your eye on Babylon. I believe there's a good chance that the ancient city will reemerge as an economic and as a commercial center. Well, chapter 14 begins. For the Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel and settle them in their own land. The strangers will be joined with them, and they will cling to the house of Jacob. The Lord will have mercy on Jacob and will still choose Israel. The judgment that comes on Babylon occurs when Israel is resettled in their own land. And here's another prophecy that points to the end, to the future, even to our day. When the Jews return home, Isaiah says, strangers will join them. Notice, then people will take them and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them for servants and maids in the land of the Lord. They will take them captive, whose captives they were, and rule over. Over their oppressors, God will turn the tables on ancient Babylon. Remember, for 70 years, Daniel and Ezekiel and their fellow Jews were exiles in Babylon. But when God overthrows Babel, the Babylonians will serve the Jews. He goes on, "...and it shall come to pass in the day that the Lord gives you rest from your sorrow and from your fear and the hard bondage in which you were made to serve." That you will take up this proverb against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers. He, will st- he, he, he who struck the people in wrath with a continual stroke, he who ruled the nations in anger, is persecuted, and no one hinders. In other words, the Babylonian king is going to taste some of his own medicine. Like Saddam Hussein, he'll be humbled. You know, chapter 13 is God's judgment on the city of Babylon. But now chapter 14 points a finger at Babylon's king. Historically, at the time of Babylon's fall to the Medes and the Persians, King Belshazzar ruled over Babel. But the spiritual king of Babel is someone far more sinister. Notice we're told, The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Indeed, the cypress trees rejoice over you, and the cedars of Lebanon, saying, "Since you were cut down, no woodsman has come up against us." Remember, the book of Isaiah was written a hundred years before the Jews were taken into captivity to Babylon. God knew. God used King Nebuchadnezzar to judge His people, but during their captivity, these words of Isaiah provided them hope. The Jews were assured that one day God would turn the tables on the Babylonians. He would cut down their oppressors. They held on to these words of Isaiah. These prophecies encourage the exiled Jews. And where there's hope, even the worst circumstances can be endured. It's been said when hope is alive, the night is less dark. The solitude is less deep. And the fear is less acute where there's hope in 1965 Navy pilot James Stockdale was shot down over the jungles of Vietnam for seven years he was held prisoner by the Viet Cong in the Hanoi Hilton in the jail in the infamous prison there he was frequently beaten and tortured and isolated from others at times he went weeks with his hands chained over his head he couldn't even swat the swarming mosquitoes He ended up permanently impaired by his ordeal. When he was finally released, he was asked, how in the world did you endure such horrible torture, such horrible brutality for so many years? And this is what he answered. Hope kept me alive. The hope of one day going home, that each day could be the day of my release. Hope is a powerful, a powerful entity. I've heard it said, a man can live 40 days without food, Three days without water, eight minutes without air, but he cannot live one second without hope. We need hope. And this is why biblical prophecy was written. This is what biblical prophecy is all about. It was written to folks who were in the middle of the battle, who were caught between good and evil, God and Satan, that's you and I. And yet, prophecy fast forwards to the end of time to the final battle, to the day of the Lord, and it reveals the victor. And it says to us, if we'll stand with Jesus now, we'll win in the end. We're on the winning team. If we stand with Jesus now, we'll win in the end. God will work all things together for our good and for His glory. Verse 9 speaks directly to the king of Babylon. Hail from beneath is excited about you to meet you at your coming it stirs up the dead for all all the chief ones of the earth it has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations wow how would you like to somebody to say hey hail is going to be excited about you buddy hail is going to be there to welcome you all the kings are going to be wrestled up. They're all going to be waiting for you when you arrive. Belshazzar was the Babylonian king who mocked God by bringing out God's sacred vessels and filling them with wine and whiskey. He used the holy saucers and bowls to toast the idols of Babylon. It was blasphemy against the true God. And now Isaiah sends Belshazzar an invitation, an invitation to hell. He says, hell is eager to welcome you. It looks forward to your arrival. All its inhabitants will come out to see you. And then verse 10 records his reception. They all shall speak and say to you, Have you also become as weak as we? Have you become like us? Hell humbles its former kings, its arrogant men, and it'll do the same to Belshazzar. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol. That's Hebrew for hell. And the sound of your stringed instruments, the maggot, is spread under you, and worms cover you. Welcome to hell, buddy. Notice here what Isaiah teaches us about hell. First, apparently people are conscious in hell. They're very much aware of their condition and their surroundings. They speak, they see, they have thoughts, they have feelings. Second, hell's inhabitants recognize each other. Here the former kings of the earth, they know the king of Babylon when they see him. Apparently they know each other in hell. Third, they mock each other. Hell is full of sarcasm. Talk about bullies. They're all over the place in hell. It's residents sneer at the king of Babylon. Have you become as weak as we? It's a spiteful place. Hell is a spiteful place. And then fourth, hell's inhabitants are subject to great pain. Here they're lying on maggots and covered in worms. You know what a maggot is, don't you? A maggot is a slug-like, worm-like parasite. It has a mouth hook that tears into its food and literally rips it apart. Whenever my wife... I never heard this expression before, I married my wife... But whenever my wife gets really repulsed, she always shouts out, Gag a maggot! Gag a maggot. You know why she says that? It's because maggots don't easily gag. Maggots eat everything. If you gag a maggot, that's repulsive. In Mark chapter 9, when Jesus warns us of hell, he mentions three times in Mark 9 their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hey, if you like lying down on a gas grill while worms and maggots crawl all over your body, then hell is your kind of place. So, what the hell's going to be like. In summer of 2010, a shocking event occurred on a United States Airways flight leaving Atlanta. Someone brought on board a container of rotted meat filled with maggots. As the plane taxied to the runway, maggots started falling out of the overhead bins, creating quite a disturbance on the plane. One passenger said, it only takes one maggot to upset your world. I suppose so. The plane was immediately turned around and it was returned to the gate. But when you take your seat in hell, you're going to be sitting in a bed of maggots. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you what it says. Plump red wigglers will be crawling all over your body. Hell must smell like a bait shop. If you don't like maggots, here's another reason to give your life to Jesus. Unlike U.S. Air, hell isn't going to stop for a few maggots. And a maggot shower is just one of the tortures of hell. You remember Luke chapter 16 tells us that hell is a forever fire. It's forever on fire. It's like what Moses saw on Mount Sinai. You remember he saw the bush, the burning bush. The bush burned, but it wasn't consumed. Its torment, its, its inferno was eternal. This is what hell will be like. It will burn continually, but never die out. Your throat will always be parched. Your thirst will never be quenched. In Dante's Inferno, he writes an inscription over the gate of hell. All hope abandoned, you who enter here. We talked about how we all need hope. The worst part of hell is that there will be no hope. It's been said, even hell is truth known too late. The reality of a literal, eternal, infernal hell should shake us all out of our apathy. That we don't go there, and that the people we love don't go there. Several years ago, I read a Gallup poll that revealed 60% of Americans believed in hell, in a literal hell. But here was the kicker. Only 4% of Americans thought they were going there. 60% believed in it, but only 4% thought they were headed there. Let me ask you, what's the basis of your hope? Some folks trust in the fact that they're a good person or that they try real hard or that they mean well. They're hoping that God grades on the curve. A.W. Tozer once wrote, the vague and tenuous hope that God is too kind to punish the ungodly has become a deadly opiate for the consciences of millions. Other people hedge their bets. They've bought into some religious dogma. And yet, let me tell you what the Bible says. If you're trusting in anyone or anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, you're going to hell. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God has made one way to heaven. And that's through His Son, Jesus. Realize, God's one and only provision for sin is the shed blood of His Son, Jesus. Therefore, if you reject His blood, if you reject Jesus, then you are signing your ticket to hell. There's no other way to get to heaven but through Jesus. Verse 12 continues to address the king of Babylon. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. Now recall, biblical prophecy is fond of twin fulfillments. Remember, prophecy comes in pairs, in twins. Up until this point, Isaiah 14 has spoken of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. But Belshazzar was only a puppet on a string. Far more sinister was the force behind the marionette. For a spiritual king had propped up the earthly ruler. In Daniel chapter 10, an angel was dispatched to Daniel with a message. When he arrived, he said that he had been detained by the prince of Persia. A demon, a fallen angel. It's interesting, on occasion, demons empower and they inspire the kings of this world. So much so that there was a demon Prince of Persia. There was a demon assigned to Persia. And this was also true of Babylon. If Babylon is the seat of Satan on the earth, then who do you think is the king of Babylon? Well, no doubt, it's Satan himself. Here Isaiah sees past the human kings of Babylon to the power that had motivated them and had inspired them. This is also what happens in other prophecies in Ezekiel 28. There, Ezekiel is describing the king of Tyre when all of a sudden the Holy Spirit shifts the conversation to Satan who was the power behind Tyre. And Notice here how Isaiah refers to Satan, to the devil himself. He calls him, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Realize, Satan didn't begin as the epitome of evil. Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 14 says that he was once, and I quote, the anointed cherub who covers. He was an angel and a special one at that. One who actually covered. He was the anointed cherub who covered perhaps the throne of God. You remember when God gave to Moses blueprints for how to to build the Ark of the Covenant. And of course the Ark of the Covenant was a symbolic representation of the throne of God. Two golden angels were to sit on top of the ark. Their wingspan covered the mercy seat. The Bible mentions two archangels, Michael and Gabriel. But perhaps in the beginning, there were three archangels. Perhaps Lucifer was also one of the angelic trio who covered over or hovered over God's throne. Here he's called the anointed cherub who covers. We know that Lucifer played a role in the worship of God. Ezekiel 28 verse 13 depicts him as a musical creature. Perhaps Satan was heaven's worship leader. Ezekiel calls him the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Here, Isaiah calls him Lucifer, which means light bearer, and son of the morning. This was the star that shone so brightly that you could see it just as the sun was coming up. We're wrong to think of Satan as an impish, cartoonish character in a red suit and pointed ears and horns and pitchfork. Oh, he's far more glamorous, far more sophisticated. He comes in the most pleasing shapes and attractive forms. He's the gorgeous blonde in the string bikini. He's the hip professor with all the cool sounding arguments. He's the self-righteous preacher spouting seductive lies. We need to beware. Paul refers to fallen Lucifer as an angel of light. In other words, Satan is a master deceiver. The angel Lucifer once occupied great heights and yet never has anyone fallen so far so fast. Here we're told he was cut down to the ground. Recall what was written of the king of Babylon in verse 9. Hell is happy to see him. This will be the case with Satan. You know, some people assume that today the devil rules over hell. Not so. That couldn't be further from the truth. Satan wants nothing to do with hell. Satan's headquarters is Babylon, not hell. Revelation 20 says that at the end of the great tribulation, Satan will be bound in hell for a thousand years. And when that day comes, hell's inmates, hell's inhabitants, will look down on the list of new arrivals for that day, and they'll see Satan on the schedule. And they'll all get excited. They'll finally get a chance to vent their rage and exact their anger upon this evil one. To unleash their frustrations on Satan. They'll be the ones that will come out and welcome the king of Babylon. Not just Belshazzar, but Satan himself. And what does hell say to the devil in verse 9? Have you become as weak as we? Satan doesn't reign in hell. He gets kicked around in hell. Satan becomes hell's punching bag. His pride gets brought low. His music gets shut off. The old serpent crawls for eternity with maggots and with worms. And here's the sin that caused his colossal fall. Verse 13. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation, on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Five times in these two verses, Lucifer says, I will. I will. I will. I will. Pride had entered his heart. Recall the middle letter in the word sin. It's I. Lucifer sings with Sinatra. I did it my way. Somewhere along the way, it all turned into all about Lucifer. Notice this. He went from worship leader to entertainer to celebrity to worship hoarder to devil. And all pastors, all worship leaders should take heed to that progression. Because it can happen to us. Pride caused Lucifer to get tired of worshiping God. He desired to be worshipped himself. He wanted to steal the glory that was due to God. He said, I will be like the Most High. Hey, Hey, Lucifer was already pretty high up on heaven's chain of command. I mean, he was the anointed cherub who covered. But that wasn't enough. He coveted Most High rank. And it didn't dawn on him that there's only room for one most high. Satan desired to be exalted like God, and yet God informs him in verse 15. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. He wanted to be like God. Instead, he will descend and be thrown down to the lowest depths of Sheol or of hell. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus said he was there when Satan crashed originally. Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Must have been quite a sight, like a lightning bolt thrown out of heaven. Lucifer, the son of the morning, cast down to the the earth. You know, Satan no longer makes his home in heaven. He was fired from serving God. Today, he roams planet earth. The New Testament refers to Satan as ruler of this world, as prince of the power of the air. He has a stranglehold on rebellious men and the systems that influence them. And yet it was at the cross that Satan's final and ultimate defeat was sealed. Jesus broke the power of sin and death. When Jesus returns, he'll lock up the devil in hell. Matthew 25 verse 41 says That hell was not made for man, but it was made for the devil and his angels. And thus, when Jesus returns, he will assign Satan to the very place that Satan has tried to avoid over all these years. Notice one other subtle but vital point about hell. Isaiah says, Satan isn't only brought down to Sheol, but brought down to the lowest depths of Sheol. Implied is that there are depths... Or that there are levels or degrees of punishment in hell. Some folks will be sentenced to hotter spots than other people. And then verses 16 and 17 make an interesting observation about Satan's arrival in hell. Those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? Is this him? Is this the guy? When Satan is finally forced out of the shadowy recesses in which he works out into the light of day, we'll all be astonished. Is this the guy who bullied us around? We'll be amazed that we allowed such a puny little punk wreak such havoc. Satan was a defeated foe all alone, but it was because of our fears and our doubts and our lack of faith, that we allowed this one to work so much mischief. Roy Putnam writes, It is the fearful who allow the devil to hold high carnival on this planet. Satan sets up his tyranny only because he has not been challenged. James tells us the same thing. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Don't you know you have power over the enemy? Don't you know that if you resist Satan, he'll flee from you? He's forced to. He has to. Hold on to this promise. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in this world. Do you believe that? You should. Verse 17 finishes the thought. Who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities who did not open the house of his prisoners. Here's a description of Satan's work. In fact, this is Satan's legacy. He kept people in prison. That sort of sums up his work. You know, it's interesting. Satan will let you change your addictions. He'll let you go from alcohol to cigarettes. He'll let you go from video games to online poker. He doesn't really care what your addiction is. He just wants you to keep you in bondage. Just as long as he can keep you locked up and in bondage to sin, he has you. Only Jesus can overthrow Satan in your life and truly set you free. Some of you tonight need to run to Jesus, your deliverer. And then notice verse 18. All the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory. Everyone in his own house. But you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch. Like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with a sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a corpse trodden underfoot. Notice Isaiah here refers to Satan as an abominable branch. Remember what Jesus is called by Isaiah? The righteous branch. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. People slaughter for his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face of the world with cities. And then verse 22. For I will rise up against them, says the Lord of hosts, and cut off from Babylon the name and remnant and offspring and posterity, says the Lord. God will put an end to the Babylonian dynasty. He says, I will also make it a possession for the porcupine and marshes of muddy water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says the Lord of hosts. What descriptive language. Isaiah, he writes sometimes in this wonderful, this full of idioms, full of metaphors. You know, God will sweep Babel with the broom of destruction. How vivid. He'll leave it for the porcupines. Chapter 14 ends with the judgment of of Assyria and the Philistines, two different nations. You remember, Assyria were the ones that invaded Judah in Isaiah's day. They were the immediate threat. Babylon would come later. And so in verse 24, God predicts Judah's deliverance from Assyria. We've been talking about this in the previous chapters. He says, the Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so it shall come to pass, and as I have purposed so it shall stand that I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains tread him underfoot. And this is exactly what God did. Isaiah chapter 7 through 9, we talked about it a couple weeks ago, describes how Emmanuel, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, the angel or the messenger of the Lord, came in a single night and slew 185,000 Assyrian troops who were camped against Jerusalem. It was a miraculous Deliverance. Verse 25, then his yoke shall be removed from them and his burden removed from their shoulders. What a wonderful day that, would, that was for, for Jerusalem when the burden, the Assyrian threat, was removed from its shoulders. What a day it'll be in the future when God removes the burden from their shoulders. And this is the purpose that is purposed against the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. Again, the prophecy seems to swell beyond just the local setting to a more global, more future fulfillment. Notice in verse 24, God promises to break, and I quote, the Assyrian, a person, not just an army is in view. And again, this is a dual prophecy, present and future. The Assyrian speaks of both the ancient Assyrian, the first world ruler, but also... The Antichrist, the last world ruler, is referred to in prophecy as the Assyrian. God will break them both. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? What a powerful promise. What a powerful verse that is. Who can fight against God's purposes and win? No one can. What God purposes will prevail. And that includes, my friend, His promises to you. Always remember, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 24, Paul tells us, He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Chapter 14 closes with God's warning to the Philistines. And since they were west of Jerusalem and Assyria invaded from the east, Emmanuel's annihilation of the Assyrian troops saved the Philistines as well as Judah. That's why God says to them, This is the burden which came in the year that King Ahaz died. Do not rejoice, all you of Philistia, because the rod that struck you is broken. For out of the serpent's roots will come forth a viper, and its offspring will be a fiery flying serpent. In other words, don't you Philistines get the big head? Just because you've escaped judgment this time doesn't mean that there are other threats not on the horizon. Repent, or a viper will follow the serpent. Assyria fell, but Babylon will follow. Though the teacher gets replaced, God's lesson will remain the same. They need to repent. Verse 30, The firstborn of the poor will feed, and the needy will lie down in safety. I will kill your roots with famine, and it will slay your remnant. Wail, O gate! Cry, O city! All you of Philistia are dissolved, for smoke will come from the north, and no one will be alone in his appointed times. What will they answer, the messengers of the nation? That the Lord has founded Zion, and the poor of his people shall take refuge in it. There will be salvation for Jerusalem, The Philistines, Philistia, will go up in smoke. And there we have Isaiah chapters 13 and 14.